Hey, if you have your Bible with you, open it to uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, we're going to spend pretty much the whole morning in 1 Corinthians 6. We've got a couple other verses we'll throw in, but 1 Corinthians 6.18 is where we're going to start. Um, if you've got your phone with you or iPad or whatever, if you've got the Bible, uh, go ahead and pull that out. I won't be offended. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we have one for you. And so out at the Info Hub, we have one that looks just like this and reads just like this, and we'd love to give it to you as a gift just for being here. We want you to be in the Word with us. Um, in fact, I'm going to preach right out of this one right here. So 1 Corinthians 6.18, we're in this series called Guardrails. And uh, we're finishing up today, and if you've missed it, what we've said is that um, we've given you the definition of a guardrail. And we said that a guard, guardrails are a system, and that's an important word, it's a system, it's not just one thing we do, it's a system uh, designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limits areas. Now those two words are, there's, there's a lot of words in there that we're keying on, but it's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying, straying is important, like Cameron said, prone to wonder into dangerous or off-limits areas. And what we've said is that guardrails on the road are always placed in safe areas. You know, uh, technically, you could drive where the guardrail is, but what we know is that somewhere on the other side of that guardrail is something that's dangerous. And so we want to put the guardrail in a place that's safe, but it's going to keep us from going into someplace that's dangerous. And so what we've said is, uh, uh, for our behavioral guardrails, what we've said is we want uh, the guardrails to be a standard of behavior or a personal standard of behavior that eventually becomes a matter of conscience. Because what we've said is that our conscience, God sometimes speak to us, speaks to us through our conscience. And so we want those standards of behavior to become second nature to us. That when we see something, we automatically recognize, hey, that's a guardrail for me, and I need to stop right there. I can't go any further than that. And so that's what we've been talking about. I think guardrail is a great uh, visual story. Because when we started preaching about this a couple weeks ago, I got an email from a friend of mine, and he said I could share his story, but not his name, and you'll find out why uh, maybe here in a minute. But my friend uh, is a motorcycle rider, and uh, he and some buddies uh, took a trip down to uh, Deals Gap, North Carolina, to this road called the Tail of the Dragon. Now, there's some cyclists in this group, uh, and I know that you're looking at that going, oh man, I wish I was there right now. It doesn't look like this right now, probably, okay? Um, but... Uh, the, the, this road, the Tail of the Dragon, is an 11-mile stretch of road that has 318 turns on it. And the idea is they get to the top of this road on their bikes, and they go one at a time, and you try to go as fast as you can, <clears throat> within the speed limit, of course, as fast as you can down this road. Now, what you'll notice on this road is there are no guardrails, or very few guardrails. It's all these twists and turns. And so my buddy um, had a Harley Sportster which if you know anything about bikes, is not the sportiest bike, d d despite the name. Uh, Harley Sportster is a little more of a cruising bike, but he, uh, for the first time, decided to go down this road, the tail of the dragon. And he got up to the top and he was nervous. It was his first time. And, and he uh, went down, he made it down all 318 turns and uh, was nervous and shaking and, and gripping the bars. But at the bottom, I guess there's a little store or whatever where they all meet up and they get back on their bikes and head out on the highway. And he's driving on the highway. Of course, now you're going 60 or 65 miles an hour. And he's thinking about, oh, what a great ride that was and how well he did. This guy almost went off right there. I don't know if you saw that, but <laughs> this is not my friend. But, um, but he's thinking about what a great job he did on the highway. And all of a sudden he lays down his bike. Now, when I say lay down, when, they, when cyclists say lay down their bike, that sounds really gentle, but that's not usually what happens. And so my friend is going 60 miles an hour on the highway and wipes out and runs into a guardrail, body first. Now, he uh, ended up breaking his uh, hip and fracturing three ribs, but he told me, he said, I was really glad the guardrail was there. 
And I said, well, that sounds crazy. Why were you glad the guardrail is there? He said, because on the other side was a 700-foot drop-off. And if there was not for that guardrail, if I hadn't hit the guardrail with my body, it would have been much worse. So his trip was over. But the point of the story is this. Guardrail may cause damage. It may cause damage to your vehicle. It may cause damage to your body. But it's better than straying into what's on the other side. And so that's why for the last four weeks we've been talking about guardrails because um, guardrails are so important. In fact, my friend said this at at the end of his story. He said, I thought this was so telling, and especially um, based on our topic today. He said, um, you know what? He said um, that when the road is really curvy and you can tell it's dangerous, people are paying attention. And maybe you don't need guardrails as much. So like on the tail of the dragon, he says you don't need guardrails as much because everybody knows it's dangerous. He said, but it's when you think that you're past the danger that the guardrails really come in handy. And, you know, uh, we know this. We've experienced this as a church. Uh, as a church, I don't know how much you know about our history, but we've had an affair in our past. And um, what we found is at that time, it was very painful for everybody who was involved. What we found at that time is that all of us who were around the table then, our marriages got very close after that. Like we started watching out for one another and asking each other questions and holding each other accountable and, and watching what we were doing and, and, and being more loving to our spouse and doing all those things uh, that you need to do. But what happened was a year down the road or two years down the road, those things kind of go away. They dissolve. You forget about them. And that's where you need guardrails. And so today uh, we're going to talk about what it means to put guardrails in your sex life. Now, today is my wife's birthday. And um, so I told her as a birthday gift, I was going to go through an entire message about sex and not tell a single personal story about us. And so uh, she accepted that. (laughs) And so, uh, and um, anyway, 1 Corinthians 6.18 is where we're going to start today. 1 Corinthians 6.18. This is a letter written from the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Corinth. And he says this, he says, flee from sexual immorality. What is sexual sexual immorality? We're going to talk about that in a minute. He says, flee from sexual immorality. And then he says, all other sins a person commits. Stop right there. What's going to happen when you read that is you know that Paul's about to differentiate sexual immorality from every other sin. He's going to say something that's going to make us go, oh, this is why that's different. All right? And it maybe is not what you think. But he says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So the idea here is that Paul viewed sexual sin as different from every other kind of sin. And I think most of us get that. Most of us see that intuitively. But here's the mistake that many of us make, especially as Christians, okay, in the church. This is what we do. We say sexual sin is different because it's worse in God's eyes. Now, that's not what Paul says. All right? uh, we, we sometimes have the tendency to make sexual sin bigger and more uh, spiritual than other sins. We will say things like, well, his adultery is much worse than my gossip. You know, or, or her homosexuality is much worse than my lying. But that's not what Paul says in this verse. Catch this. He says, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So what Paul is saying is sexual sin is different from every other sin because of the effect it has on us. That's what he writes. He says, no other sin affects their body like sexual sin. Now, here's what you know intuitively about sexual sin, I think. We can recover from a lot of things, right? I mean, if we, if we have some sin uh, or sin pattern or habit that we have in college and it forces us to drop out, uh, we can recover from that. We, we, can, we can get our lives straightened up. We can go back to another school. We can get another degree, and we can go on with our lives, right? I mean, if we, 
offend somebody in our family, if we, if we gossip and it causes a rift in the family, you know, it may take some time, but we can apologize, we can mend fences, we can get back together, and, and things can be back to how they were. But sexual sin is different, isn't it? I mean, I think if it, most of us or many of us know someone who's had sexual sin committed against them, they were raped or they were abused or molested, and you don't just recover from that, do you? I mean, it's much tougher. Those, the people uh, who I know in my life who have the hardest time forgiving are people who have experienced sexual sin. And, and I understand that, and I think you do too. Uh, it's exactly what Paul was talking about uh, when he says that when we sin, we sin against our own body. Now, this is why I shudder when our culture tries to tell us that sex is just physical. Because I think in our minds, in our hearts, we all know that that's not true. But what, what culture does is it leads us right up to the precipice and it says, it's okay to watch that. It's okay to look at that. It's okay. Whoa, don't do that. You know, we're going to get closer and closer and closer to this imaginary line that is sin, right? And culture says, that's okay. That's okay. That, and then one day, all of a sudden, it's not okay anymore. That's what culture says. And it says, hey, you know what? It's okay uh, because sex is just physical. But we all know that there's a connection there, Right. And I think to understand that connection, uh, what we have to do is look at Scripture. And we've got to look at what God's design uh, is for sexuality. And so in Genesis 2.24, you don't have to turn there. The, the verse will be on the side screens. But in Genesis 2.24, I think this is the key verse. When, when it comes to understanding human sexual relationships, this is the key verse maybe in all of Scripture that tells us about that. Genesis 2.24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, now, I want you to look at this because this is a relationship that affects our body, right? Just like Paul says, sexual sin affects your body. This is a relationship that affects your body. And so, um, you know, a while back I used to teach students and I was trying to think about how to best demonstrate this. And I, I've done this demonstration a couple times. So if you've been here for a while, you've maybe seen this before. But I think it's really powerful if you haven't um, about what it means to be one flesh with somebody. And so scripture tells us that God created us, that he formed us out of the dust. He, he pulled us out of the dust and breathed life into us. And um, scripture often compares us to uh, being molded, right? Like we're clay in the potter's hand or something like that. And so, um, you know, when we're created, we're created as this beautiful little ball of clay that's created in God's image and molded and shaped by him. And then what happens is one day we see this other beautiful ball of clay, and um, he dresses nice, and he showers most of the time, and so he smells good, and he's got a job. He doesn't live with his mom, and so um, we, we get really excited about that, or she, okay? Uh, we get really excited about that, and one day we decide to become one flesh with this person, and so we, we become one flesh. You know, hopefully we're married, but maybe we're not. We, get, we become one flesh, and we get to, into this uh, single ball of clay. This is what scripture says, okay, that you become one flesh with somebody else. It's two colors, but it's mixed together. It's exactly how I just happened to pick Colt's colors here. I'm sorry about that if you're in mourning, um, blue and white, but um, this, is what, this is what God says marriage is like, all right? This is what sex is like. We become one flesh, and so this is why it's so painful when we get divorced. This is why when we break off a sexual relationship, it's more painful than um, when we break off a non-sexual relationship because we try our best to get back to our old flesh, but we don't because some of that flesh is still left behind, right? And so we try to recover and we go on with our lives, and, um, but we look a little different, but we do it, but we meet somebody else 
and somebody else comes along and, well, he has a job, you know, and um, maybe he doesn't smell nice all the time, but he's single, he's available, and, uh, and we're kind of desperate right now, and so maybe we'll just become one flesh with him too, right? Well, that's not going to work out probably, and so um, we try to separate again, but again, we're left with the remnants of somebody else's flesh, and then this happens uh, for some of us over and over and over again, and the, the whole bonding and separating piece, and every time we're left with a piece of somebody else's flesh that isn't ours, and before you know it, you end up looking not at all like God created us to look. It's not God, God's design for humanity. He says that a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And, and you read that, and, and if you're um, you know, astute at the Bible at all, you may say, well, you know what, Steve? He's just talking about marriage there. He's not talking about my sexual relationships outside of marriage. But what I want to show you is in God's eyes how closely these two things are related. And so I just want to bring up one verse. Um, this is Exodus twenty-two sixteen. I could, I could point to a lot of them. But I just want to show you one verse that shows how closely sex and marriage are related in God's eyes, okay? And this is, um, there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. This is one of them. Uh, Exodus twenty-two sixteen says this. He says, uh, 22, 16. It says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, okay? So if a man wants to have sex outside of marriage with a woman, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. That was the rule. That was the law in Old Testament culture, in Jewish culture. If, if you want to go, uh, as a man, if you want to go sleep with a virgin, you are going to pay the bride price and you are going to marry her. In other words, in God's eyes, what he says is, you want to act like a married person? You need to be a married person. And so God's saying these two things are intricately related. You cannot separate marriage and sex. You can't have sex without marriage. You can't have marriage without sex. That's in God's eyes. And so that's what he's saying, right? If you want to act like a married person, you need to be a married person. And so with all that background, Paul says flee from sexual immorality. So what does that mean? What is sexual immorality? Well, uh, in whole, it's not defined for us. You know, there are a lot of places in Scripture where we can read about what it means to be sexually immoral. I mean, uh, Leviticus 18, for instance, is an entire chapter about what it means to be sexually immoral. But, but what we're going to use is we're going to say anything outside of God's design, Anything outside of one man and one woman in marriage bonded to become one flesh is sexual immorality. And Paul says to flee from that. He says we should flee from, we should run away from sexual immorality. We should change the channel from sexual immorality. We should turn off the computer from sexual immorality. That's what Paul's saying. Now, you may think that's legalistic. Uh, you, if you're not a Christian, you may think that's not loving. It's not very compassionate. Uh, but in the same way that your parents warned you against crossing a busy street when you were a kid, uh, a compassionate God would only warn you of the danger, right? And, and hopefully, now that you're older, you see the wisdom in that. When you were a kid, you may have looked uh, down the street and not seen any cars coming and think, I don't understand why I can't cross the street. But your parents may have known something you didn't. They may have known the speed limit was 55 on that street. They may have known that there was another lane you couldn't see. They may have known a lot of things about that. Well, in the same way, I think God sees the danger in sexual immorality, and so he warns us of it. Let me give you another example. Um, a couple years ago, we had a big ice storm, and uh, in uh, our, the house we lived in then, we had um, a bunch of trees, and we lost a lot of limbs, and so um, after it cleared up, I went around our yard, and for about three hours, picked up uh, branches and limbs, and we had a fire pit, and I stacked them about six feet high 
uh, in my fire pit. And I was just waiting for the first nice day. I was going to burn all that up. And um, a friend of mine came over to my house and he goes, are you going to set that on fire? And I said, well, yeah, that's the plan. He goes, would you call me when you do? Because I want to see that baby go up. And I hadn't really thought about it, you know, that, that this fire is contained this way, but it's not contained up. And um, when I remember that analogy, I started thinking, you know what? Sex is a lot like fire. You know, we even use some of the same words to describe the two, don't we? I mean, if we're attracted to somebody, we might say, she's really hot, right? You know, we might, if, we're, if we really, really want to uh, be with somebody, we might have a burning desire for them, you know? Well, if we used to date somebody, they may just be an old flame, right? But, but maybe we still like that old flame and we want to rekindle that relationship, right? I mean, we use the same words talking about sex and about fire. But let me tell you something. My, uh, the house we live in now doesn't have a fireplace. The, the last two houses we lived in had a wood-burning fireplace. And, and uh, like a couple weeks ago when we were snowed in, man, I would have liked nothing more than to have a nice fire going and, you know, a cup of hot tea and be reading a book and just sit all day in front of that fireplace, but we don't have a fireplace. Now, what if I were to take matters in my own hands and just decide, you know what? I know you're only supposed to have fires in the fireplace, but if I were to have a fireplace in my living room, this is where it would be. And so why don't we just start a little fire here and keep ourselves warm? It probably wouldn't work out very well, would it? Well, in the same way that when fire's contained in the right environment, it's warming, right? It's, it's romantic. It's, it's comforting. I think sex is the same way. Inside the right environment, it can be all those things. But outside of that, it's dangerous. And you may think I'm exaggerating. I mean, you may think, you know what, um, I've not been burned uh, in sexual relationships. But let me ask you this. Just seriously, let me ask you, especially if, if you've gone through this, if you've experienced, um, you know, this life, in all your relationships, outside of marriage, in all your relationships, in all your life, has sex ever made those relationships simpler or better? Or does it just make them more complicated? That's why this is not God's design. That's why Paul says we should flee. Paul says we should flee from sexual sin. But let me tell you a truth about you and about me and about our culture today. We don't like to flee. We like to flirt. We, we like to flirt with the line. We like to pretend that there's an imaginary line that when, when, when uh, God says, you know what, there's sexual sin, there's sexual immorality out there, that there's a line that we can inch closer and closer and closer to without crossing that line. So if anybody catches us, we can say, you know what, I haven't done anything yet. But we inch right up to that line. And so we see it every year when new TV shows come out, when new movies come out, and people push the boundaries further and further. We see it in our relationships at work. We see it in our relationships, um, in our neighborhoods. We see people getting closer and closer and making more and more comments and more and more watching more and more you know, sexually explicit shows. And we see the culture says it's okay. As long as you don't cross that line to where you're going to go sleep with somebody else, it's okay. It's all right to do that. And even some of our TV shows, you know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's held as a high standard now. You know what? I know you're in a married relationship, but that person loves you. They're different, right? And your husband doesn't appreciate you. And so we celebrate sometimes on TV and in movies when somebody goes outside of their marriage to have a sexual relationship because that person cares and their husband doesn't care. You know, we don't like to flee. We like to flirt. But Paul says we should flee, especially from this kind of sin. In other words, we should run the other way from and so with that in mind, what I wanted to do was give you some practical tips, practical hints today, um, some guardrails, 
to put in your sex life. And um, these are not scripture, okay? I've given you scripture. I've given you the reason, the background, but these are not scripture. These are, some of them are my opinion. Um, Some of them are in our employee handbook. At Genesis Church, I want you to know that we take great pains because we have males and females working in our office. We take great pains to make sure that we have guardrails in place. And especially as a church with an affair in our past, we uh, are extra careful. And so when you hear these, you may think, well, that's really extreme. I mean, that's really, but remember, the guardrail is always placed in a safe area, right? But it prevents you from what's going over there. Every step you take can move you closer to that danger zone. And Paul says to flee. So with that in mind, let's look at some guardrails that we can have. Um, Married people first. Okay, I want to talk to married people first. Any married people in the room? Good? Good. All right. Let's talk to married people. Married people, uh, don't ride in a car alone with someone from the opposite sex. Don't ride in a car alone with someone from the opposite sex. I mean, that seems pretty harmless. That may seem pretty extreme to you. Uh, You think a car? What can happen in a car? So let me ask you, don't raise your hand. (laughs) How many of you have ever had your first kiss in a car? Car can be very intimate, right? People can't see you. And if they do see you, they only see you screaming down the highway. They can't tell who's in a car with you. And so no one can uh, see or hear what's going on inside a car. And so some, a lot of relationships start on a simple drive. Um, this is one that's in our employee handbook here at Genesis. I want to give you an example of this. When we launched our Carmel campus about a year and a half ago, uh, well, two years ago at this time, we were working on that building. We inherited a building that was a church that needed some work. And so we had a lot of contractors and uh, architects, designers that were uh, helping us to design and build out that building. And uh, Robin Lee, who's our director of operations, and I were the two uh, staff members most involved in that. And so we um, would often have a meeting at the Carmel campus with a contractor. And we would, we, we officed here at the time, uh, we would get in our cars that were parked right next to each other usually and drive to Carmel and park our cars right next to each other and get out and go to the meeting. And then when it was done, we would get back in our respective cars, come back over here, park them right back where we left them. Uh, I didn't say that having guardrails was very green, okay? <laughs> um, but we didn't want any... Uh, any sense of impropriety. We didn't want any opportunity for something to happen beyond, um, you know, just a friend and working relationship. And so we were very careful about that. We're always very careful about that. If you ask one of our staff members uh, of the opposite sex to ride with you somewhere, they will say no. They should say no, okay? Because that's one that we've put in place. So that's one, don't ride in a car. Number two, don't eat alone with someone from the opposite sex. Um, Very few affairs start with, hey, you wanna go to bed? They almost always start with a friendship or a work relationship or something that can get more and more intimate. And eating together is a very intimate activity, especially at a restaurant. I mean, it starts with, hey, let's have coffee. Let's have lunch. You know, and, and that's a very innocent way uh, to start. You know, and you might think, I can eat without being sexual. All right? But remember, guardrail's always on the safe side of what's going to happen. Now, I had a friend that was having marriage troubles um, about three or four months ago. And uh, she called me up, and she knows I'm a pastor. She's not a Christian, 
She knows I'm a pastor, and she said, hey, I want to talk to you about my marriage. I want to talk to somebody about my marriage. I need to get a biblical perspective on that. And I was really excited about that because she's not a Christian, and I wanted to help her. Um, and, and I said, well, come to my office, you know, and, and we've got people here during the day. You can come over, and, and, and we can talk about it. We can sit out in a cafe or whatever. And, um, and then she said, well, I can't. I've got to work during the day. Can you meet me for lunch? And my guardrail alarm went off. And I said, you know what? I don't eat lunch with women who aren't my wife. And then I said, I've got an idea. What if my wife came with us? And she said, that'd be great. And so my wife and I ended up coming and having lunch with this lady. And then she not only got my perspective as a Christian husband on what to do, but she got my wife's, uh, who is a much better Christian wife than I am. And so (laughs) she uh, got to hear from both of us, and we didn't have to violate that guardrail. And so um, that was, I thought, very clever. And my wife was very appreciative. And my friend, who's not even a Christian, told my wife how much she appreciated that I had that guardrail in place. Uh, so don't eat alone with someone from the opposite sex. Number three is kind of related. Don't counsel someone from the opposite sex. You know, you might, you might uh, have somebody in your office that just comes into your office and plops down every day and wants to talk about her marriage problems, you know. And, and uh, when I tell you that, you go, maybe you think, but she needs me. I, I, she, she needs, you know, I listen to her. Well, um, I get that. And, and she says, Nobody ever listened to me like I listened to, to her. Well, nobody has yet. But what you need to tell her, if it's a, a female, you need to tell her that she needs to find a female that can sit with her and listen. Because um, when people, especially when they're having marriage problems or relationship problems, they are at their most vulnerable. And they are most open to suggestion and to temptation. And so people who are very vulnerable, I mean, even as a pastor, I I have a hard time with this because I have females from time to time that want to come and meet with somebody. And we will try, our staff, I want you to know, our staff will try to put a female with a female. Uh, Even up here after the service, if you come up here to pray, if you're a a woman, um, if there's a female up here on the prayer team, I am probably going to listen to you and then try to pass you off to a female on the prayer team. Not because I don't love you, not because I don't want to pray with you, but because we think that that is such an intimate engagement that it's important that you do that with somebody from the same sex. You know, and so um, I have a friend who's a a runner. She's an ultra-distance runner, runs 100-mile races. Really cool lady. Um, We kind of uh, met on Twitter and talk about we've run together sometimes, and um, uh, not alone, we've run together uh, in races and things. And she called me one time, and she was um, trying to keep up because she moved to another state. And she was calling me and telling me about um, really horrible past, but some things that she's discovered through this counselor that she's seeing, this Christian counselor, who I had recommended that she go see a Christian counselor, and she wanted to give me an update, and she started telling. And then she started telling me that through this counselor, she found out she had sexual addiction issues. And this counselor was helping her with that. And um, she was telling me this. And I, and I said, whoa, whoa, stop. I have to tell you that I can't counsel you on this. You need to find a Christian female in your area that will talk to you about this. And so I, I, I gave her my recommendation of somebody she might be able to see. But I said, we can't talk about this anymore. Okay? I, I, not that I don't want to help you. I'll pray with you. I prayed with her on the phone. But then when I hung up, the next thing I did was I called my wife. And I said, I want to make you aware of a conversation I just had. And I told her everything that she said. Because I don't want uh, my marriage to fall apart for a lack of guardrails. Okay, so married people, those three. Uh, number four, don't have a computer in a private area. 
Uh, and I'm going to talk especially to guys right now. Guys, there are a lot of temptations on the internet, uh, a lot of temptations on television. I know this has gotten tougher. It's almost impossible with smartphones and tablets, um, but you need some internet guardrails in your life. And I don't know what that looks like in your house, but, but let me tell you what we've done. Uh, we have a computer um, in our room, which is in an open area, and uh, my wife and I share that space. We use it, and um, I don't get on it once my wife goes to bed. I, I don't get on the internet when my spouse is asleep. Uh, it's just, that's the rule. I don't use, I, I don't play on my smartphone. I don't um, get on the internet. Again, because uh, if you, especially if you've had issues with looking at explicit uh, images or videos in the past, if you have a computer as your primary way to get on the internet, have it in a public place or, or make this commitment. Uh, this is kind of a related one. Stay off the internet when your spouse is asleep. Now, you may think I've got I've to work. I've got work to do. I don't want to spend do that with my family. I'd rather do it after I'm asleep. We'll try to get your internet stuff done while they're awake. I mean, there, you, we've got to have a way. Uh, to put these guardrails in place because you know, you know better than I do where the danger is for you on the other side of that guardrail. So that's for married people. Single people. Just gouge your eyes out. <laughs> there is a Bible verse about that, but um, single people, it's so tough. It is so hard. I would not want to be a single person at this, at this time in our culture because of what culture tells us about sex and how everything's okay. But, but let me give you a few. Uh, number one is this. Apply the married guardrails to your life when you're dealing with married people. And so if you're a single person, don't ride in a car with a married person of the opposite sex. Don't counsel with a married person of the opposite sex. Don't eat lunch or dinner or have coffee or whatever alone with a married person of the opposite sex. Treat them like you'll want somebody to treat your spouse someday. I mean, uh, I love um, 1 Timothy 5 says, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You know, when Paul's counseling Timothy, he's talking about people in the church, and he's saying, hey, if you're going to counsel people, if you're going to deal with people, treat them as you'd want somebody to treat your brother or your sister, you know, or your mom. You know, treat them uh, like they are a co-heir with Christ because that's what they are. And so if you're single... You want to treat them like you want somebody to treat your spouse someday. Um, how about this one? Uh, if you're single, no sleepovers. You know, I liked sleepovers when I was eight, um, but you don't have to have them now. If you're, if you're in a serious relationship especially, and you may think, you know what, when, when I sleep over, nothing happens. Well, that's kind of beside the point because, remember, it's a guardrail, right? It's there to protect you from what's on the other side. Uh, sleeping at somebody's apartment or dorm or condo or whatever is not a sin, but it can lead to it. There's just too much temptation there, so no sleepovers. Um, and maybe you're in a culture where you say, you know what, uh, dating is sleeping over. Like, that's, that's what it means. If I say I'm going to go on a date, that means that there's a, a promise that sex is going to be involved uh, somewhere down there. Well, let me just say, if you're in that culture, if you're in that environment right now, you may need to take a break. <clears throat> it may be you need to take a break from dating. And so... Um, this is very extreme. But if that's your culture, if that's what you're in, if you're, if you're uh, seeing a whole bunch of different people and every time you go out with somebody, um, there's, there's an expectation that there's going to be something beyond a date, um, circle a date on the calendar. Maybe it's six months or a year from now. And you say, I am not going to date until I reach that day on the calendar. Because you need a break. You need a time to reconnect with God. You need to reconnect with your relationship. And let me tell you what's going to happen. If you, say, if you say, I'm not going to date for six months, and you circle that day on your calendar, in the first month, 
you're going to meet the person of your dreams. <clears throat> and you're going to tell them, I'm not dating right now. But if they're really the person of your dreams, they'll wait. They'll know. They'll understand. They, they want you pure. Now, I, I, it's been so long since I've been single that I want to tell you I don't know all of the possible guardrails that you may have to put in place if you're single. Uh, you may have to stop going to that social club. Uh, you may have to delete the Snapchat app, app on your phone. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is that pulls you in, but if you're single, you've got to be able to set guardrails that protect you from the danger that's on the other side. Now, why? Why is this so important to us? I mean, so what if sexual sin affects our bodies more than any other? Why should it matter? It's my body, right? <clears throat> well, if you're not a Christian, that's true. It's your body. But if you're a Christian, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and see what Paul has to say about that. So 6.18 says, flee from sexual sin. 6.19 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And so Paul says, you know what? If you think whatever I'm going to do with my body, it's my body. If you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, your body is not your own. 6.20 says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. <clears throat> and that's the whole reason for guardrails. It's the whole reason we want to put in place because God loves you. He, he, he created you. He bought you at a price. And if you're a Christian, if, if you've accepted Jesus' lordship over your life, he saved you for a purpose. And the best way to honor him in this area of your life is to put guardrails in place and to flee from what he says is harmful and wrong. Now, the purpose of what I've been talking about is not at all to make you feel guilty. I mean, you know, when we talk about this, this is how we sometimes view ourselves because of how sin affects our bodies. But there's a scripture that says that, that God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at what's on the inside, right? That God looks at our soul, you know? And, and so what I want to close with is this. What, what if we've messed up in this area? And what about those of us who have so many different colors in that ball that we just don't even remember what we look like. Well, I just want to tell you that um, someday you'll meet that person of your dreams. Maybe you're already married to him or her. Someday you're going to meet that person and you're going to have one of two stories to tell. Your story may be, uh, you know what, I was caught in sin and temptation and uh, I heard that I was supposed to stop, but I kept doing it. Or your story may be, you know what, I heard about sex and sin and temptation. I knew that I was supposed to stop. And even though I've got a checkered past, even though I've really screwed up in the past, I decided at that time, at that point in time, that I was going to stop. And I was going to make a change with my life. And I was going to start treating people with purity. And I was going to do something different. And, and uh, 2 Corinthians, the great thing is 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. See, so many times what we try to do if we know we've messed up <clears throat> sexually is we try to um, pick this old flesh off. And so we'll <clears throat> uh, tear up the old pictures we have of that relationship and we'll um, unfriend them on Facebook and we'll um, start gossiping about that person to our girlfriends so that nobody else wants to date him 
and we'll try our best to clean up our body so that we look new and nice and presentable, but that's not what Jesus wants to do. He says, I want to make you a new creation. I want to make you new. The old is gone. The new is here. He says, I can take your past, which is so, you look at and you say, it's so ugly. It's so beaten. It's so bruised. What can you possibly do with it? And God says, I can make something beautiful out of it. I can make something new out of it. You just turn your life over to me. If you just let me run it, I'm going to make something new and beautiful out of your life. That's what God wants for you. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'm so thankful for that truth that even in our sin and rebellion, that you've got a plan for uh, what you want from us. That you have the ability, you've already paid the price to make us new. That this isn't something that um, we can look at and say, I don't know that that can be done. You've already proved it time and time again, and your final proof was on the cross, God, that you sacrificed everything, including your son, to make us new. And I know this is a sensitive area for people and a lot of people and uh, in any way. If there's uh, guilt and shame over what we've talked about today, Lord, I just want you to take that away and to remind people that they can be made brand new. Uh, to remind them that, that uh, you created them and you love them. That you made us with a purpose and that only by accepting you and the redeeming work that you did on the cross can our bodies be redeemed uh, for a new purpose and made into something beautiful. And God, we just cling to that promise today. Thanks so much for your word that tells us how to live. Thanks for the opportunity to put guardrails in our lives, God. We just, um, we just want to come before you now and sing of your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.